This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, nice of you all to be here uh, to this event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, which is sponsored by the Hawthorne Den Literary Retreat. Uh, I'm Alan Taylor, and I write for the Herald and the Sunday Herald and edit the Scottish Review of Books. And it's a great pleasure to welcome here to Edinburgh again Martin Amos. Thank you. Um, I could say that he needs no introduction, but um, the author of The War on Cliché would probably bang me over the head for saying so. Um, I don't think he really does need an introduction. Um, it horrified me, Martin, looking back to discover that um, you wrote your first novel, published your first novel, just over 40 years ago. How yes, ancient I... do you feel? Um, well, um, it was all going quite well until I turned 60. Then I had a new thought in my head, which is, this can't turn out well. <laughs> um, and more recently, is, I'm 65 tomorrow. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, and another thing is, how am I going to get out of here? Out of Edinburgh? No, out of, <laughs> out of mortality. Oh, out of mortality, yes. Um, which is a new thought. Yes. You, you suddenly... I, not that I'm at all keen to leave. No, no. But you just think, what is going to be my delivery system, my means well, of the, getting to the next... The exit strategy. The exit strategy. What is exactly. the departure lounge going to be like? Yeah, exactly. Yes. It'll be like a Ryanair departure lounge. That's what it'll be like. <laughs> um, anyway, I mean, on that sombre note, we're going to go into even more sombre notes, I suspect. Um, because... Uh, Martin's just uh, published this uh, wonderful book, The Zone of Interest, which is set in a concentration camp, uh, and an unnamed concentration camp, but obviously, I guess, Auschwitz. Well, Auschwitz was unique. It, it was um, a death camp and a work camp yes. and an industrial complex. Um, no other camp ticked those boxes. Yeah. Um, so it clearly is Auschwitz. There's a... Um, Similarly, um, the name Hitler is, n Hitler is never named never in, named, in the yeah. novel. And that's just a sort of personal um, scruple of mine, I think, because to type out Hitler in a novel would seem sort of crass and risk bathos. Um, well, you didn't want to give him the dignity of naming him? It's not that. It's just a, you know, this sort of titanic figure, and you have to... I wrote a book about the gulag, and... Mm. Um, Stalin's name is only mentioned in, yeah. in a footnote for the rest of the time. He's Joseph Vissarinovich, which feels manageable. But to type, it's something crass about mm. typing out Hitler. Uh, but I mean, one of the fascinating things about the book is, is the language and the language that the Nazis employed, um, which was uh, as if a whole nation had been taught a new language, a euphemistic language. Uh, but they did actually, they, they did not not refer to Hitler, did they? They, they talked about Hitler, Heil Hitler, they mentioned Hitler all the time. Well, except he was the Führer. The, the Führer, yeah. yeah. Um, well, um, Klemperer, Victor Klemperer, yes, Victor who Klemperer. wrote um, those huge books of 
I shall bear witness until the bitter end, um, wrote another book about the language of the Third mm. Reich. And uh, you know, what strikes us and disgusts us now is, is, is the brutality and the euphemism, mm. the combination. Of, and at one point in the book, uh, an intellectual member of the SD, the, the intellectual wing of the SS, is saying, you know, what happened? It feels supernatural. And I can't quite rid myself of the idea that something supernatural happened. I don't believe in the supernatural, mm. so I, I shy away from it. But um, it's as if something reptilian was revealed to them and that they, they decided that that was what they were going to follow. Mm -hmm. Gregor Strasser said in about 1930, when asked to describe what National Socialism would be like, he said, it's the opposite of what exists today. Yeah. And I think there was some almost a conscious scheme to turn themselves into the opposite of human beings. Uh, as he says, the same character, they're non-mammalian, they're reptilian. Yeah. Mammals with their you know, warm blood and live births could never have done what they did. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe it's all very simple. And it, this is what happens if you put it about and, and ram it home again and again, that cruelty is a virtue. And that was mm -hmm. you know, fanaticism, all these words that we, we distrust and, and consider to be uh, antipathetic, they embraced you know, our, with our mercilessness, our mm. fanaticism, our indomitable will, etc. The fat fanaticism is a bit like a virus, isn't it? It seemed to completely run its course right through a nation. And, and, and this is what's obvious in, in this book. Um, maybe you should say a bit m more about the actual uh, idea behind the book or what the book is actually about. But first of all, you might like to say a little bit about the title, um, The Zone of Interest, because we learn what that actually is towards the end of the book. And, it, and it's explained well, by it, the commandant's wife. Yes, it, but The Zone of Interest was the official name for the Auschwitz area. Hmm. And um, <coughs> interest has a strongly financial emphasis here. And um, reading, re reading and going on reading about the Holocaust, you get to the point where you think it was meant to be an earner, the Holocaust. Yeah. It was meant to be um, you know, self-funding, yes. <laughs> that they wildly exaggerated the wealth of the Jews. But such details as did you know that, that, that very many of the people who went to Auschwitz as victims paid their own way? Third-class fare at the, at the usual rate of you know, mm. 90 pfennigs a kilometer or whatever it was, uh, and, and they paid it. The, the Jews and others who went to Auschwitz paid their own way. Um, and you can imagine the clock of satisfaction with the the Nazi accountants as they did their figures and um, well you you know you, you have this business where people are coming off um, the trains and being welcomed by the camp commandant with a welcoming speech um, you know as if they'd just gone to Butlin's holiday camp exactly and um, and they got better and better at doing that in the early years the Holocaust began in um, summer of 1941 and was more or less complete by mm. the end of 1942 yeah. Um, and 
in the early months, it was utter brutality. Whips, dogs, mm. um, loudspeakers, uh, total violence. Um, and then they, they refined it mm. and, they, and they concentrated on deception. So there'd be mar marvelously hideous things like the, a, a doctor, a Nazi doctor in a white, white coat and black boots would say, um, now you're going to go for a disinfect. I'm not going to pull the wool over your eyes. You're here to work. And it'd be honest, um, honest work for honest board. But um, first you're going to have to be disinfected because we haven't got any diseases here and we don't want any. Mm. And if you have any special dietary needs, please talk to Dr. Rauka after your dinner at the, um, at the Traveler's Lodge, where you'll have a hot stew and, yes. and all this. And then they were dead 10 minutes later. Um, and um, and this, was interest, this was in the interest of efficiency as well, and also in the interest of stopping any sudden hysteria breaking out, so that people would, as it were, go meekly to their deaths. Yes, I mean, that, that is um, a very grey area, and the, 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 there was resistance. Mm. And, um, but it's, it's, it's a slander of the Jews that um, they went like sheep to the slaughter, and they did not. But it's um, absolute truth about the Germans is that they went, they went to the slaughterhouse um, like sheep, and they put on the, yes. the rubber aprons, and they got to work. That's almost... Um, more unbelievable than the fact that the Jews, you know, did. That, that's, that was the Jewish strategy. It had been for four millennia that you, you wait out mm. the really virulent bits of persecution, then you negotiate, and that's mm. how they'd always done it. And that was an absolute cornerstone of Jewish thought that you, you, you let the aggression boil down, and then, you, then you try to seek terms, um, and. They were bringing this old tradition of thought to a completely new situation and didn't yeah. understand what they were up against. Mm. And you have three narrators for the book. Um, one is, as I said, the camp commandant. The other is a Nazi Lothario uh, who just happens to be a nephew of Martin Bormann. Martin Bormann, who is the brown eminence. Um, he was Hitler's secretary. And in, you, you measured your power in the Nazi hierarchy by what they called Führer Kontakt, how much time you spent with the Führer. And, um, and Bormann was the second most powerful man in the Reich, yeah. if, if that's your uh, measure. So my, the main hero of the book, um, main protagonist, and he, is, he isn't an ignoble figure in the end, um, is Martin Bormann's nephew, so he has a good deal of protection. And he can move like a Zelig. Yes, um, he can move in and out. With certain position. immunity. Um, and then the third narrator. is a Jewish uh, Zonderkommando who is um, charged with disposing of the dead Jews. The Jews have been killed. And his survival depends on how well he does that. But at the same time... Not, not just disposing, working with the dead, which yes, is what they mainly did. The Sonderkommando, Primo Levi says, you know, no one in the history of the world has been as degraded and as miserable as the Sonder Brigade, in that they first had to greet the Jews and say, let me get you a, a coat hanger for yeah. that nice Astrakhan coat, and be, 
be, be sure to memorize the number of your locker, tie your shoes together because you'll be needing them. Yes. Go, and they were all just going straight into the, after, into the chamber. Um, the most degraded people on earth. But what Primo Levi didn't know is that they did occasionally save people, the Sonder Commanders. Yes. They, they used, they, the people they saved were all young men, uh, youths, and uh, the Sonders would weave among them, say, you are 18 years old and you have a trade. And those who listened to that advice stuck their chests out and say, I'm a cobbler or I'm an electrician um, and I'm 18. And, you know, it's sort of a trickle of lives was saved by them. So, so Primo Levi, who is not, never no. set, um, brings a final judgment down on these most degraded of all people. Um, um, but in addition, they did save lives. So that, that was their excuse for going on living, and a, a good excuse. But they themselves had a limited lifespan because um, they knew uh, about the atrocities. So I think the average lifespan of a Sonder commander was three or four months. Uh, which was the average for a, an inmate. Yeah. Um, no, their first job, if, once you joined the Sonder commander, your first job was to cremate your predecessors. So there was never any question that you could survive, you could survive. just how long you could survive. No. And um, if you were very good at your job, like mm. my, my yours is very my good Shmuel, at your job, then you you could make yourself indispensable and um, prolong it that way. Very tragic and dreadful situation. I mean, one of the most horrific things in this book um, is that the Zonder Commando has to come up with sort of efficient ways of doing his job and being even more efficient than the Germans, so that. They have trouble, the, the, the number of people being killed are so many that um, they have trouble counting them. And, and figures are a big part of this book. Um, but the Zonder Commando comes up with a new way of counting them, which is instead of counting shattered skulls, shattered skulls he, he counts uh, thigh bones. And divides by two. Divides by two. And that, that I, I found one of the most horrifically graphic things in this book. But, um, also, Primo Levi talked about, you know, how did you survive? Um, how did someone survive these camps? And, of course, there was a measure of guile involved, a measure of making yourself inconspicuous. But the primary thing that he said was luck. Yes, luck. How did you survive? Um, you needed certain things. Talent for inconspicuousness. Having, having a trade and being useful to them was would get you indoor work. Yeah. If you were out, outside in the Polish winter, that was that, more or less. So um, uh, other things that are more difficult to grasp for us, like a constantly nurtured sense of your own innocence. Mm. Solzhenitsyn says this in the Gulag Archipelago, that your innocence is a great source of strength. Mm. But uh, you know, from the survivors' testimony, testimonies that I've read, it seems they were really exceptional people, um, that they, they had a deep and responsive sensibility. Mm. You'd think that would be a weakness. Sensitivity is not what you'd want in, in a death camp. Yes. But in fact, it was a source of strength. And that's one of the great paradoxes of the whole story. Would you like to just give us a little 
excerpt from it yeah, just now? Yeah, I, I will. But uh, before, I do, before I do, I'd like to tell a joke. Um, <laughs> that not the last time I was here, but one of the most memorable times I've spent in Edinburgh, which, by the way, didn't you think was looking at its most gorgeous this afternoon in the sun. I came here with Christopher Hitchens, um, and uh, I can't tabulate the hundreds of hours I spent talking about the Holocaust with him. It was one, one of my friends who was as deeply obsessed by it as I am. But anyway, we were, we were doing an event together in Edinburgh, and uh, he told a joke, and I'm going to tell it as he told it. Um, it's largely irrelevant to what we gathered, but, uh, and he, Hitch used to love spinning out a joke, so I'd, I'll make it slightly shorter, but in his own words. He said there was a, there was a young Scotsman um, who, yes, it's about Scott, uh, <laughs> who um, was a debauchee, and he, nothing, he liked nothing better than boozing and whoring and uh, gambling and all the rest. And the priest tells him, he said, do, do you realize what you're risking? Um, that eternal punishment is going to be your fate. And, um, and Christopher referred to those pages in uh, Joyce's The Portrait of a Young Man, Portrait of the Artist of a Young Man, about infinity, where he said, the thing about infinity is not that it never ends, it's that it never begins. After 100,000 years, you're no nearer to the terminal point. And the priest tells him this, and he says, yeah, but I, you know, made my, I don't care about eternity. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, so as he's dying at age 31 of um, liver failure and um, syphilis, the, the priest appears in his room and says, it's not too late. You know, he says, get out of here. Fuck um, off. I made my choice, and I, you know. Uh, then he, he dies and, and wakes up in this terrible, vast cave um, with darkness visible, as Milton put it. And um, as he's lying there, being, in Christopher's words, being scorched and peed on, <laughs> he cries out, he cries out, <laughs> he says, Lord, I didn't ken. And a booming voice replies, Well, you can, you. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. He was obviously Glaswegian. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was in Glasgow he told this year. Um, the novel begins with a, a sort of love at first sight moment, although it's not really love. At this stage, it becomes love, but it's more lust. Um, and it's, the, the man is called Golo Thompson, and he's the nephew of Martin Borman, and he's a pra practice seducer. And he's doing terribly well with the women because he's six foot four and has icy blue eyes and white hair and a uh, big torso. He's the absolute SS ideal. So he, he, he's um, opportunistically doing tremendously well with women because of his appearance. Um, and he, the woman he's interested in is the wife of the commandant. Um, and unbelievably, many SS had their wives and their children at, at Auschwitz. Um, and there was little communities of women and, um, who would take their wife 
their children to Auschwitz. Anyway, he, he decides that he's going to set his cap at this woman. Um, and his, his best friend, who's a Waffen-SS colonel, says, you know, you, you're crazy to risk this because you know, he may be an old boozer and sadist, but he, he is the commandant and he can, with death, the pressure of death so vast in that place, he can direct death at you without much trouble. But he, he says, well, I'm going to go, go and have a good look, he says. So he just shows up one evening, and there he is on the steps, and he says, good evening. Yes? On the steps of the Orange Villa, I found myself confronted by an unsettling little character in thickly knitted woolens and with bright silver buckles on her shoes. Is the master of the house at home, I asked. I knew perfectly well that Dole was elsewhere. He was out on the ramp with the doctors and with Boris and many others to receive special train 105. You see, I have a high priority. Humiliate, said a voice. What is it, humiliate? The displacement of air further back, and there she was, Hannah Dole, again in white, shimmering in the shadows. Humilia coughed and politely and withdrew. Madam, I'm so sorry to impose, I said. My name is Golo Thompson. It is a pleasure to meet you. Finger by finger, I briskly plucked off the chamois glove and held out my hand. Golo, she said. Yes, well, it was my first attempt to say Angelus. I made a mess of it, as you see, but it stuck. Our blunders haunt us all our lives, don't you think? How can I help you, Mr. Thompson? Mrs. Dill, I have some rather urgent news from the, for the Commandant. I don't want to be melodramatic, but a decision has been reached in the Chancellery on a matter that I know is of his paramount concern. She continued to look at me in frank appraisal. What is it you do exactly? She said, I liaise, I said, and gave a shallow bow. If it's important, then I suppose you'd better wait. I've no idea where he is. She shrugged. Would you care for some lemonade? No, I wouldn't put you to the bother. It's no bother for me. Hum Humilia? We now stood in the rosy glow of the main room. Mrs. Dole standing with her back to the chimney piece. Mr. Thompson poised before the central window and gazing out over the perimeter watchtowers and the bits and pieces of the old town in the middle distance. Charming, I said. This is charming. Tell me, with a regretful smile, can you keep a secret? Her gaze steadied. Seen up close, she was more southern, more Latin in colouring, and her eyes were an unpatriotic dark brown, like moist caramel with a viscid glisten. She said, well, I can keep a secret when I want to. Oh, good. The thing is, I said quite untruthfully, the thing is, I'm very interested in interiors, <laughs> in furnishings and design. You, you, you can see why I wouldn't want that to get about. Not very manly. No, I suppose not. So was it your idea, the marble surfaces? My hope was to distract her and also to set her in motion. Now Hannah Dahl talked, gestured, moved from window to window, and I had the chance to assimilate. Yes, she was certainly built on a stupendous scale, a vast enterprise of aesthetic coordination, and the head, the span of the mouth, the might of the teeth and jaws, the supple finish of her cheeks, square-headed but shapely, with the bones curving upward and outward, 
I said, and the converted veranda? <laughs> it was either that or the humilia came through the open doors with the tray and the stone pitcher, the two platefuls of pastries and biscuits. Thank you, humilia dear. When we were again alone, I said mildly, your maid, Mrs. Dole, is she by any chance a witness? Capital W. Uh, Hannah held back till some domestic vibration undetectable by me freed her to go on, not quite in a whisper. Yes, she is. I don't understand them. She has a religious face, don't you think? Very much so. Humilia's face was markedly indeterminate, indeterminate as to sex and in indeterminate as to age, an unharmonious blend of female and male, of young and old, Yet, under the solid quiff of her crest-like hair, she beamed with a terrible self-sufficiency. It's the rimless glasses. How old would you say, say she is, asked Hannah. Uh, 35. She's 50. I think she looks like that because she thinks she's never going to die. Mm, well, that would be very cheering. And it's all so simple. Hannah bent and poured, and we took our seats. All she's got to do is sign a document, and that's the end of it. She's free. Mm, just abjure, as they say. Yes, but you know, Humilia couldn't be more devoted to my two girls. And she's got a child of her own, a boy of 12, who's in state care. And all she's got to do is sign a form, and she can go and get him. And she doesn't. She won't. It's curious, isn't it? Said, I said, I'm told they're meant to like suffering. And I remembered Boris's description of a witness on the flogging post. But I would not be regaling Hannah with it, the way the witness pleaded for more. It gratifies their faith, imagine. They love it. Seven o'clock was now nearing, and the room's blushful light suddenly dropped and settled. I had had many remarkable successes at this phase of the day, many startling successes when the dusk, as yet unopposed by lamp or lantern, seems to confer an impalpable license. Rumors of dream strange possibilities. Would it be so unwelcome, really, if I quietly joined her on the sofa that after some murmured compliments took her hand and, depending on how that went, gently smoothed my lips against the base of her neck. Would it? My husband, she said, and stopped as if to listen. The words hung in the air, and for a moment I was jarred by this reminder, the ever more bewildering fact that her husband was the commandant. But I endeavored to go on looking serious and respectful. She says, my husband thinks we have much to learn from them. From the witnesses, what? Oh, you know, she said neutrally, almost sleepily, Strength of belief, unshakable belief. I said, the virtues of zeal. That's what we're all meant to have, isn't it? She said. I sat back and said, well, I can see why your husband admires their zealotry, but what about their pacifism? They're Jehovah's Witnesses, of course. No, obviously, in her numb voice, she went on, Humilia won't clean his uniform or polish his boots. He doesn't like that. No, I bet he doesn't. At this point, I was registering how thoroughly the invocation of the commandant had lowered the tone of this very promising and indeed mildly enchanting encounter. So I softly clapped my hands and said, your garden, Mrs. Dole. 
Could we? I'm afraid I have another rather shameful confession to make. I adore flowers. <laughs> A paradise. Such gorgeous tulips. They're poppies, she said. Yeah. <laughs> poppies, of course. What are those ones over there? After a few more minutes of this, Mrs. Dole, having not yet smiled in my company, gave a laugh of euphonious surprise and said, you know nothing about flowers, do you? You don't even, you know nothing about flowers. I do know something about flowers, I said, perhaps dangerously emboldened. And it's something not known to many men. Why do women love flowers so? Go on then, she said. All right. Flowers make women feel beautiful. When I present a woman with a plush bouquet, I know it will make her feel beautiful. Who told you that? My mother, God rest her. Well, she was right. You feel like a film star for days on end. Dizzily, I said, and this is to the credit of both of you, to the credit of flowers and to the credit of womankind. And Hannah asked me, can you keep a secret? most assuredly. Come. There was, I believed, a hidden world that ran alongside the world we knew. It existed in Potentia. To gain admission to it, you had to pass through the veil or film of the customary and act. With a hurrying gait, Hannah Dole led me down the cindery path to the greenhouse. And the light was holding, and would it be so strange, really, to urge her on inside and to lean into her and gather in my dropped hands the white folds of her dress. Would it, here, where everything was allowed? She opened the half-glass door, not quite entering, leaned over and rummaged in a flower pot on a low shelf. To tell the truth, in my amatory transactions, I hadn't had a decent thought in my head for seven or eight years. Earlier, I was something of a romantic, but I let that go. And as, as I watched Hannah curve her body forward, with her tensed rump and one mighty leg thrown up and out behind her for balance, I said to myself, this would be a big fuck. <laughs> a big fuck. That was what I was saying to myself. Now writing her body, she faced me and opened her palm, re uh, revealing what? A crumpled packet of Davidoffs. A packet of five. There were three left. Do you want one? I don't smoke cigarettes, I said, and produced from my pockets an expensive lighter and a tin of Swiss, Swiss cheroots. Moving nearer, I scraped the flint and raised the flame, protecting it from the breeze with my hand. This little ritual was of high socio-sexual significance, for we dwelt in a land, she and I, where it amounted to an act of illicit collusion. In bars and restaurants, in hotels, railway stations, etc., you saw printed signs saying women asked not to use tobacco. And in, the, in, and in the streets, it was incumbent on men of a certain type, many of them smokers, to upbraid wayward women and dash the cigarettes from their fingers or even from their lips. She said, I know I shouldn't. Don't listen to them, Mrs. Dole. Heed our poet, Mrs. Goethe. You shall abstain, shall abstain. That is the eternal song. I find it helps a bit with the smell, she said. That last word was still on her tongue when we heard something, something born on the wind. It was a helpless, quavering chord, a fugal harmony of human horror and dismay. We stood quite still with our eyes swelling in our heads. 
I could feel my body clench itself for more and greater alarms. But then came a shrill silence, like a mosquito whirring in your ear, followed half a minute later by the hesitantly swerving upswell of violins. There seemed to be no such thing as speech. We sm smoked on with soundless inhalations. Hannah placed the two butts in an empty bag of seeds, which he then buried in the lid lidless rubbish barrel. Thank you. Well, up to a point that could have been a 19th century novel's courting scene, except when you remember the context it's in. Yeah, that's, I mean, in the opening love at first sight or lust at first sight scene, it's all could be completely normal. And then she sort of backs off into the zone of interest, as it's called. And she moves past the, the ornamental um, water mill, the, mm. the, the horse tethered to the water pump, uh, the wheelless gallows, and on into the. So it, you can't start a novel without. People say, why did you decide to write another novel about the Holocaust? Mm. You don't decide to write novels. It's always the wrong verb. You you get a sort of shimmer, um, a frisson, and various novelists have described it in various ways. Nabokov called it a throb, and that it, that's what it is. And you think. Here is a work of fiction that I can write. Nothing else about it attracts you mm. except it's the donné, the gift of, you know, here, here is something I can write. And that, that was what started it in my mind, was the incongruity of a, a strong attraction registering itself mm. against this um, horribly ambiguous background. We could perhaps have the lights up and then people could put their hands up and the microphones will come. You can ask questions. There's a gentleman up there uh, um, and a gentleman over here. So can, sorry, up there and over here. Uh, you could always deny the throb, I suppose, because you're going to spend three years um, in hell. Oh, yeah, well, more than three years. But um, I've, I've, once the throb is there, you know the novel is there. And it's, it is Norman Mailer in a book called The Spooky Art is dead right. That it, there, there is something very spooky about, about the art of fiction. Yeah. Um, the way the unconscious does all the really hard work. And, um, you know, you have to, page by page, you have to make all these decisions. But the big decisions are all subconscious. Gentlemen up here. Um, at the end of the novel, you reference Primo Levi's uh, moral imperative. Can I just ask how that affected or influenced the sections of uh, the book that you wrote from Doll's perspective? The, the, the sections of the book that you wrote uh, from Doll's perspective? Um, well, I expected this to... to um, you, you know, if you want to find out what you think about the Holocaust, then you look up in your thesaurus uh, the word wicked, and you, you write down all those synonyms, base, evil, Etc. Um, but then, um, when you've done that and you've got a, a list of, you know, five hundred synonyms, you then look up the word stupid, um, dumb, you know, all the rest, all them. And then, after a while, having looked up a few other words that are too obvious to mention, you look up the word ridiculous. It was it was uh, a ridiculous undertaking. 
um, and you know most historians agree that um, it was that Germany had no chance of winning the war because so much of their manpower and energy and train um, hours were devoted to this absurd scheme of killing all the Jews. And also, when the war was lost in December 41, um, when, when Hitler, having been told that his attack on Moscow could no longer secure any kind of victory, four days later he um, gratuitously, suicidally declared war on the United States of America. You're fighting the USSR on the Eastern Front, now you're fighting the USA on the Western Front, as well as the British Empire. Um, from then on, it became a purely self-destructive uh, venture. But killing the Jews was a war aim that, that went on right into 1945. Yeah. Um, killing, the, killing the Jews for whom? Who was going to bask in the sun of a, a, a Jew-free Europe? Not the Reich. The Reich, there wouldn't be a Reich. The Reich was doomed from 41 onwards, um, you know, long before Stalingrad. Um, and th then you, you're, you, you can't rule out insanity, although he doesn't quite pass as an as utter maniac, Hitler. And, and then what was his last will and testament? Uh, by then it just sounds pathetic and ridiculous. He said, um, it's true we killed a lot of Jews, but by a more humane method than those who died in battle. Um, but, you know, what I, my legacy is that people will now recognize that the eternal poisoners of mankind are the Jews. Um, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't cohere at all. So, anyway, I was with the the third narrator, um, Dole, I, I emphasize the stupidity and the, you know, and the absurdity of the whole venture. And um, it's meant to be very uneasy in that you're sort of sniggering as you read about his stupidity and absurdity. And yet these sort of terrible things are going on at the same time, and he's referring to terrible things. Um, but I, I decided early on that I wasn't I, if part of what I bring to it is satirical um, verve, then that's what I'm going to bring to it. Mock it. Okay, thank you. Yeah. In the afterword um, of your book, you refer to suffering from chronic stasis, a sort of mental block, which seems to be captured in the question why, why did this happen or why was it allowed to happen? Could you explain a bit more about that and how you c came through that and were sure. able to write the book? Sure. Um, well, a, a very clarifying sentence comes from uh, Michael Andre Bernstein, um, a critic and novelist and poet, who said that um, our understanding of the of the genocide is part of our self-understanding. And I thought that was a very bold thing to say, and I'm sure not everyone feels that at all. And W.G. Sebald's remark that no serious person ever thinks about anything else, um, 
I don't think we can say that's totally true. But it is the terminal point of human evil. And if you want to understand humanity, then you have to, you have to come to some sort of um, engagement with the Nazi idea. But I found that um, I was very frustrated by my lack of progress in that I wrote a novel about the Holocaust, rather abstract and stylized novel, um, 23 years ago. Yeah, Times, Times Arrow. Times. And I'd gone on reading, um, uh, and I found I hadn't made any progress at all. Um, and I reread Martin Gilbert's The Holocaust. And the marks I was making in the margins were the same marks I'd made 15, 18 years earlier. Um, it struck me as, as unbelievable what they did, and, um, and no more believable after reading you know, scores of books about it. And then there was this, my, my moment of um, enabling moment was when I read something I'd never seen before, which was um, a 14-page self-interview by Primo Levi. Where the question is asked, um, he answers his readers' most persistent questions. Um, and the question was, how is the Nazi hatred of the Jews to be explained? And he says, um, he said there are various accepted explanations, historical explanations, but none of them seem to me proportionate, um, commensurate with what needs to be explained. Uh, and he said, more than this maybe we should not understand it. And he said, to understand something is to, is to include it, to contain it, almost to identify with the, the behavior and thought of, of the perpetrator. Um, and he said, there's this kind of relief in this. We should be grateful that we don't understand it. I mean, those who understand it are perhaps not to be trusted, because no one, no one claims to understand it. Um, and he said, because the hatred, there is no rationality in the hatred. It is anti-human, indeed counter-human. It is a hatred that is not in us. It is outside man. And some, you know, logical minds would think, is that really saying anything? But for me, it was, I, I sort of gave a gasp of relief. And I thought, I don't have to understand it. I can write about it without understanding it. And, um, but was that, that uh, the, the kind of task you'd set yourself, that this was something the historians couldn't answer, but a novelist could perhaps answer? Well, and remember that Primo Levi was a novelist and a poet. Um, that, you know, for the, for the yeah. discursive writer, it mm. perhaps doesn't get you very far. It's circular in a way, but for the for the novelist or the poet, it, it, it lifts the pressure off the why and, and allows you to go forward. There's a gentleman here, and there's one up this way, and there's one over here, I think, somebody. Yes, there's, there's it. Women are allowed to ask questions too, actually. There's no... Right, and um, when I uh, first opened uh, my copy of Zone of Interest, I saw this line of dialogue which said, um, happy birthday, Boris, and Boris returns better late than never. And I thought, that's a cliché, but hopefully you never use a cliché without purpose. So I was wondering, uh, what was the role of cliché in constructing this fictional universe and the role of cliché in the Holocaust in general? Well, characters are allowed to say clichés. 
I mean, I'm not going to say a cliché, but they can. Um, I'm just thinking, I'm not sure that, that cliché really comes into it uh, in this novel. Um, cliché is second-hand thought. It's um, inherited. Maybe, I've always thought that Ulysses, Joyce's novel, was about cliché. Not only does he use it very brilliantly and humorously uh, in, the, in the actual texture of the prose, but he's talking about the two great cliches of Irish life, which are Roman Catholicism and anti-Semitism. And uh, what they have in common, clearly, is that they are inherited propositions. Um, they're not things you arrive at spontaneously and independently. It's the stuff of your, you know, of, of your ancestors and your parents that is just um, accepted without a examination. And um, anti-Semitism in, in Nazi Germany was, um, although it's, in fact, fierce anti-Semitism was in decline when, um, when Hitler emerged. It was not really, I mean, it was always there, but uh, the, the, the fiercely anti-Semitic party, political parties had declined and almost disappeared. Um, so it was more reaching into, a, into a, the well of, of um, primeval atavistic hatreds that uh, Hitler somehow knew how to direct um, at his enemies. Someone up here, I think it was, sort of microphone. Where, where are you? Oh, there you are, there you are. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you spoke earlier on about um, cruelty and inhumanity, and do you think that cruelty, uh, the sort of cruelty you spoke about in, in, the, uh, in the Holocaust, comes out through people's political principles, or are these cruel people looking for a means to express their cruelty, or just handed it on a plate, basically? Um, what I don't at all accept is that, um, is that we're, that human beings are just raring to be cruel. Um, that's sometimes said, you know, there's no mystery about the Holocaust. It's just that's what we're like. I don't accept that at all. Um, I think that uh, the, the human being is good um, w when an individual. And, and the, when they get together, that's when you have trouble. And According to Sebastian Hafner, a very brilliant uh, German who got out in 1939, he said, a German is a lovely thing. He's, uh, he may be quick to take offense, but very easily appeased. He is genial, he is well-read, he is um, etc. And very lovable in all sorts of ways. Germans, he said, that's what you have to watch out for. <laughs> um, when there's more than one of them, you know, look up. Um, so th I, think, I think it is, it's not, um, it's not biased to say that um, Germany was a very strange nation that didn't, that didn't follow the usual path of how nations evolved. And, um, and all the cleverest Germans, dissenting Germans, say that this all goes back to Bismarck. Hmm. that the, the uniting of Germany, in fact, under the banner of Prussia, was a very unnatural uh, sort of 
coup, really. And, um, and, Russia, and Prussia and Germany could never develop beyond that point because they were trapped in this unnatural arrangement where, um, you know, very good social services and all that, but, but democracy never got developed. And, uh, and then, losing the First World War, a new generation that, that grew up under Weimar and under inflation. Inflation, I think, mm -hmm. we can imagine that as being very, turning the head very dangerously because numbers cease to mean anything. Um, so there was a generation whose sense of failure and frustration were, by some horrible coincidence, exactly mirrored in, in Hitler, who was a, you know, education ended at 17. He was, he was kicked out of the bourgeoisie into the proletariat house painting, kicked out of the, out of the proletariat into the rabble, DOS house, uh, in the army, four years of, of great bravery, in fact, two iron crosses, uh, never promoted above corporal, couldn't be trusted with uh, responsibility. As one officer said, uh, an absolutely intolerable uh, grumbler and no war. That was Hitler in the war. Um, so you know, the personification of failure becomes this um, fusion point for national failure. Um, and it, it couldn't have been repeated, it perhaps can never be repeated, this coincidence of a, a personal um, resentment, resentiment, and national resentment, and um, with the horrifying results that we see. Gentlemen, and then lady and somebody up there. We've yes, um, a question about your writing process. Um, you've written mostly large-scale work novels, some of them involving a lot of research. I'm curious to know uh, to what extent you plan these works. How much do you know about the characters, the narrative voice, the choice of narrators, and if that's differed from work to work? Um, what, what you hope for is, um, and it's one of the best feelings as a writer, is when you, you have an idea, you have this free song, and uh, you think, all right, let's, let's start. That's page one. And, um, and the best feeling is when you think it's all there, it's all ready. Um, it's all there, you know, it's an amazing feeling. Just waiting to be written. Yeah, well, yes, Auden talked about taking dictation from heaven. I mean, I think a poet can feel that. I don't think a novelist ever does quite. Novelists being grinders, poets being... Uh, individualists, as Auden wrote, you know, the, the poet can dash forward like a hussar. Uh, the novelist has to be, um, how does it, it must become the whole of boredom with the just be just, with the filthy, filthy too. It's a, it's a much more an immersion into a sort of every man kind of feeling. Um, but there are magical moments of writing a novel, and, and then it becomes a struggle, and you, ha and you think, now where is it going to go now? And, you, and you're sort of probing. It's a journey with a destination, because you have some idea of the ending. A destination, but no maps. So you're sort of feeling your way, intuiting your way forward. Um, 
And in some novels, the struggle is uh, is you know uh, endless, and um, and you think you're there and you're not, and you realize you've got to redo, rethink, refeel the whole thing. But others, it it does sort of follow quite naturally. Um, and this one? This one, I I tell myself that I'd done all my suffering. You've got to you've got to suffer. You've got to earn it, and earning it is a mysterious concept and but it, I think it's very important and sometimes when I read and some, my own stuff sometimes I think oh no this just isn't earned it's where you don't you don't sort of do the suffering that you need to do and by suffering I don't mean getting flogged and peed on and scorched I mean the suffering that writers do which is um, again, well described by Norman Mailer is that when you come to a scene, you expect your subconscious to have mapped it out for you, and uh, and you come to it and and there's nothing there. No work of the subconscious mm. has been done. And uh, he said one of the sadnesses of being a writer is you spend a lot of time among dead things. Um, you hope that doesn't happen to you too often, but um, but it, it is going to happen. I was going to say you sounded very Scottish there at one point. Um, this lady, finally, I'm afraid, will, you can ask her a third question. Um, I was going to say, um, in terms of the Holocaust being partly due to um, sociopaths and psychopaths taking advantage of a um, vacuum of power and the silence of the, coll the collusion through silence of the others, um, can you see parallels with what's happening with ISIS, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria <coughs> just now? And, if so, do you think it's a pattern that mankind's doomed to just keep repeating? Well, it does look, look <clears throat> a bit like that. I mean, it's um, the First and Second World Wars have been compared to the Thirty Years' War, which was the war about religion um, <clears throat> three centuries earlier. But uh, religion had retreated by the beginning of the 20th century. And wars weren't, weren't being fought for that reason. And the idea, uh, uh, an optimist in you know, 1913 might have thought, well, now it's just ideology, it's not religion. So we're, you know, ideology is the sort of methadone you have to get yourself off heroin, religion being heroin, uh, and ideology being some sort of medication that allows <laughs> you to sort of calm down a bit. <laughs> On the contrary, uh, ideology turned out to be much fiercer than religion, um, with 100 million supernumerary dead because of ideology. And uh, as Robert Conquest has written, and a, a savagery not seen for centuries. Um, but now, um, nothing is so weird and uh, nasty that it can't occur, it feels now. And now religion is, it's in the name of religion that uh, these beheadings and, uh, and, you know, tentative genocides. So Islamism is, is different in that it's an ideology within a religion and so doubly potent and doubly terrifying. Um, all you can say is, you know, it's like Pol Pot and it's like Nazism, which... Um, Leninism and Stalinism lasted for the lion's share of a century. Hitler was over in 12 years, Pol Pot in three years. 
I don't think ISIS is going to be around next year. Mm. I mean, deep into next year. It's when something is so virulent that it sort of fizzles out. So that's what I hope. But plenty of things will come in to replace it. Yeah. Well, uh, fingers crossed. Um, well, the hour has uh, flown by, I'm afraid. Um, it's been a sober, sombering, but I think fascinating hour. Um, thank you for your questions, ladies and gentlemen, and attention. Um, just to say that Martin will be signing books next door, out here, turn left, turn left again. Um, I suppose we could uh, sing you a kind of premature happy birthday, but um, <laughs> probably best just to uh, thank you in the usual way. Thank you very much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.